Holy Spirit, ask that you would please come and be here and use your words in Scripture to set us free from the things that hold us in bondage. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As uh, many of you know, this week marked the 20th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I read some news accounts about people who were living in Berlin at the time, but missed it. One woman, she didn't believe that it was happening at all, so she just didn't show up at all. Another American woman knew that it was happening, but she decided that she would go to bed so that she could be well-rested for her yoga class in the morning. Guess what she was in Germany to study? German history. Oops. They sort of missed an opportunity to witness one of the greatest moments of freedom in decades. And that's sort of what is going on in the very humorous passages that we read uh, from Scripture uh, about the Israelites. We are doing a sermon series called Prison Break about getting free from the things that hold us in bondage. So what is that for you? How would you complete the sentence, I would love to be free from what? A job problem, health crisis, relationship, financial issue, boredom. What would you like to be free from? And last week we talked about how God parted the Red Sea so that the Israelites could escape from Egypt, slavery in Egypt, and be free. But then just three days after that, just three days after they see this miracle, they start to complain that they don't have any water. And that starts a pattern of complaining that lasts for 40 years. In fact, the passages that we read from Scripture are taken from all over the, the, the Old Testament. There's sort of a complaining montage. And the thing the Israelites say over and over again to Moses is, take us back to Egypt. We were better off there. We would rather be slaves in Egypt than deal with this journey to the promised land. Now, if that's not a spiritual metaphor, I've never seen one. Right? We are just like the Israelites, just like the folks who missed the Berlin Wall. I am, maybe you are too. You and I sometimes miss the freedom that God intends for us because we keep wanting to go back to our Egypt, back to our bondage. This week, someone sent me a cartoon that shows two dinosaurs watching as Noah's Ark sails away, and then one dinosaur says to the other, oh crap, was that today? <laughs> That explains it all, doesn't it? <laughs> That's us missing our opportunity for freedom because we keep going back to the things that hold us in bondage, back to the sin, back to the fear, back to the patterns of behavior that are not doing us any good. We keep going back to our Egypt. Now, I'm not saying that if you are suffering right now, I'm not saying it is all your fault. Absolutely not. Sometimes life deals us some very unfair blows. But even when the worst happens, through Jesus, we can find freedom and joy. And in the last couple of weeks, I've told you stories about people who are finding God's joy, even in the middle of things like cancer, job loss, all kinds of stuff, tough stuff. And sometimes the reason, though, we, that we don't find the freedom that, that God has for us is we keep heading back to the thing that holds us in bondage, just like the Israelites want to go back to Egypt. Now, that could either make you feel kind of depressed and sort of like a lame person, or it can make us feel empowered. 
Because if at least part of the reason is that we aren't free is because we keep wanting to go back to our bondage, well, that, that means that we have the power to reverse that and chart a course for freedom if we do two things that are pretty much the opposite of what the Israelites do here. The first thing is we need to amplify the benefits of freedom in our minds and not romanticize our bondage, which is the opposite of what the Israelites are doing in this story. One of the very humorous things, and you guys laughed and I appreciate it because those passages are meant to be funny. One of the very humorous things about that, the part of the Bible that we're looking at is the number of times the ancient Israelites complained. I mean, they are to complaining what Saudi Arabia is to oil. They just got tons of it, right? And I don't know about you, but I can relate to this. I'm just like them. I mean, everyone has at least one useless skill. Mine's complaining. And unfortunately for me, I have a wife who absolutely will not put up with it. You know, I'll be ranting about something. Don't you see how awful this is? And she just keeps reading her book or eating her dinner or whatever she's doing, right? And if ever she responds at all, she has this line to me. She says, Scott, I'm not getting on your roller coaster. You just ride that around and around and around. And when you're done, you let me know, okay? It is profoundly unsatisfying. She, she is not meeting my deep need to whine. So I am just like the Israelites in this story, and maybe you are too. But by complaining, what they are doing is they're actually romanticizing their bondage. Notice how Egypt keeps getting better and better in their minds as they go. At first, they complain that they don't have any water, and the text says all they said is they grumbled against Moses. I just love that word, grumble. It's so descriptive. <laughs> Saying, what are we to drink? So God gives them water. But then later, they run out of food, and they say, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Oh, gee, they are dramatic, right? <laughs> there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. So suddenly, Egypt has turned into canless restaurant. <laughs> so God sends them a bread-like substance called manna that appears on the ground every morning for them to eat. But then, a little while later, they say, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Yeah, right. And the cucumbers, melons, onions, and garlic. But now we never see anything but this manna. See how Egypt keeps getting better and better? It's become this cornucopia of meat and produce. <laughs> and then finally, God gets so exasperated. One of my favorite lines in the Bible, I'll give them meat. I'll give it till it comes out their noses. Right? <laughs> I mean, even God can't take complaining forever, right? Now, again, I am just like the Israelites. And I'm sure, I get it, I'm sure they were tired of the manna, right? I mean, manna stew, manna cakes, manna burgers, manna casserole, manna succotash. Only so much you can do with manna. But at each stage, Egypt keeps getting better and better in their minds. But there's just one tiny problem with Egypt. What is it? They were slaves. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? <laughs> and we do a similar thing. People say things like, I know the pornography is bondage and it's wrecking my relationship with my spouse, but it feels good. I know that God says that if I give my money, some of my money to his church, that he will give me freedom from financial fear because I'll see him provide, but I'd rather hang on to it. I can see that I've got a lot of wrecked relationships in my life, but I'd rather keep blaming everyone else for that than look at my own behavior because that seems hard. We romanticize our sin, romanticize our bondage, and keep wanting to go back to it. Because we don't see how destructive it really is. We forget that it's making us slaves. I read a true story from an Oregon newspaper about 
a middle school where for some reason a number of girls would put lipstick on in the bathroom and then they would press their lips to the mirror to leave lip prints all over, which were incredibly difficult to clean off. So uh, one day the principal brought the girls into the, some girls into the bathroom and explained how difficult these lipstick prints all over the mirror were to, to clean off. And then she said, so this is how we've been cleaning them off. And she took a long-handled brush, dipped it into the toilet, and scrubbed the mirror. <laughs> no more lip prints. <laughs> if we could just see how damaging our sin is, how actually ugly it is, we wouldn't want to go back to it. And if we would stop romanticizing it, stop romanticizing our bondage, but instead do the reverse. Do the reverse and picture how glorious God's freedom is. Freedom from fear, freedom from wrecked relationships, freedom from guilt, and freedom to have a life of courage, meaning, purpose, adventure, and joy. Then we wouldn't want to go back to our Egypt. We would want to press ahead to God's promised land. I think of a man I know who I've talked to who would complain that his wife was cold to him and was always nagging at him. But he started to think about the consequences of the divorce for himself and for his family. But more importantly, he started to notice couples around, them, around him who had really good marriages. He started to visualize what freedom would look like, see the goodness in freedom. He'd see couples who had fun together. They were still affectionate with one another. They were still having adventures together, right? Still laughed at each other's jokes, which is pretty much a miracle, right? <laughs> he saw God's freedom, and he wanted it. So he started to do three things. He started to pray a lot, started to read the Bible, but more importantly, started to do what the Bible said to do. Pretty good stuff in that book, if you put it into practice. Started to do what the Bible tells him to do, especially about how to love your wife the way Jesus loves the church. So he started showing her affection, making her feel safe, meeting her needs. And at first, it didn't change anything for a while. But then about a year later, he was back in my office with this big smile on his face, and he said, everything is wonderful. I don't feel angry anymore. We're having fun. She's affectionate with me. And then he said something that caught my attention. He said, turns out she's not a nag after all. She just needed to be loved. And now we're having fun again. You see, freedom, it turns out, is actually better than bondage. So let's not romanticize our bondage and keep wanting to go back to it. Instead, do what this man did and picture God's freedom and then head toward his promised land. Second thing we can do to break completely free is we can maximize our God and minimize the problems and obstacles we face to getting free. There's another story that we didn't read in Numbers where the Israelites, they get to the brink of the promised land. They're right on the edge of the promised land. And Moses sends 12 spies into the promised land to scope it out. And they come back, and two of them, Joshua and Caleb, are really pumped. They said, this is an amazing land, and yeah, there's some pretty big people living in that land with some armies. That's going to be difficult. But with God, we can take it. Come on, guys, let's rumble. But the other 10 spies whine. And they say, no, the people living there are giants. They're giants in the land, and, and their armies are too powerful. And, and, and did we mention the giants? And we can't win. And they convince the people to give up. 
So God says, okay, these people have a slave mentality. They are not ready for the promised land. So he makes them wait for 40 years until a new generation emerges that did not want to go back to Egypt. You see, the problem with all of our grumbling is that it makes our problems seem bigger. And then we have this idea that we can't be happy until our problems get small again. So we wait around for our problems to get small. Or we see the obstacles to getting free, and it looks like giants to us. Right? Yeah, I know if I give some of my money away, God will provide, and that will free me from financial fear. But that looks like a giant thing to do. Yes, I know if I actually forgive that person and work through the process of reconciliation, that will free me from the bitterness I feel inside. But that looks like a giant thing to do. So I won't. And we stick with our bondage because of the giants, hoping that our problems and the obstacles to freedom will somehow just magically get small. But there's another way to look at it. Instead of waiting for our problems to get small, we can start to act on the fact that our God is big and that he is bigger than any obstacle that we face. Now, that could mean a lot of things. It could mean praying the prayer I've been telling us to pray. You know, Lord, what are you doing in this situation? Show me so that I can participate. It might mean having to, uh, having, uh, asking God to give you more of his joy, even in difficult circumstances like the people I've told you about in the last couple of weeks. It could mean doing the things that God says to do to get free, forgive someone, be part of God's rescue operation. Do whatever the Bible says to do about your particular bondage to get free. And if you don't know what that is, would you please talk to a pastor or a friend so that you can know and do it on faith that our God is big enough to handle our problems. And if we do what he says to do, he will free us no matter how big that giant looks. You see, in Scripture, there is a clear pattern. Trust, risk, receive. Trust, risk, receive. If we, if we trust God and step out in faith and do what he says to do, which is always seems risky, then we will receive freedom. And there are a couple of things we have that can remind us, that can show us that God is actually good to his word, that God is actually powerful enough to deliver us so that we can have that trust. We have the Bible that tells these wonderful stories. We have our friends and their stories of how God has delivered them. And the stories I tell you in these sermons, which are all true, about God freeing people. And then we can remember what God has done for us in the past. You know, if the Israelites had just remembered what God had done, they wouldn't have been freaked out about the food and the water. I mean, they just saw God divide an ocean in two. Okay, he has a way with water. It's going to be okay. Right, don't worry about what you're going to drink. Trust, risk, receive. One of our members here told me about her daughter-in-law named Teresa, who was married to this member's son until his son was, this son was killed in Iraq. So now Teresa is a widow raising two kids on her own. But not too long ago, God gave her a lesson on how he is bigger than all of her problems and all of her obstacles. She started to feel in prayer that God was nudging her to go get a different house which at the time kind of didn't make sense to her. She has these two little kids. Her finances are okay, but she's not rich. And she was very comfortable in the house that she was. She didn't, why would I want to do that? But the feeling didn't go away, so she started to take it seriously. Well, one day she told a friend of hers what she was thinking, and the friend said, well, what would you do with the house that you're in? And Teresa said, well, I'd rent it. And then the friend said that she needed a house to rent because this friend was also a single mom living in a very dangerous neighborhood. And people in that neighborhood had started to say things about her kids, like, that's a very nice little blonde girl you have there, in kind of a threatening way. So she needed a new place to live. So Teresa prayed about it some more, found a house 
made an offer on the house that was well below the owner's asking price. A few days later, Teresa was getting ready to go somewhere, and she was praying. She said, okay, God, if the owner's counteroffer comes in at $163,000, which was still well below the asking price, I'll take it for $163K. Now, just as an aside, this was in Arkansas, so <laughs> don't be getting excited that there's some great deal out there. There is. It's just in Arkansas. Well, right as she finished, this is one of those amazing things, right? Right as she finished praying that prayer, the realtor called and said that the owner's counteroffer had come in at $162,900. God even gave her an extra $100 just to show off. <laughs> so here are two single moms in very difficult times. One having lost her husband in Iraq, the other living in a dangerous neighborhood. But because Teresa didn't get stuck in her comfort, didn't romanticize her bondage by wallowing in fear and self-pity, she acknowledged her pain, but she didn't wait around for her problems to get small. Instead, she acted as if her God was bigger than her grief, bigger than her loneliness, bigger than her fear. Trust, risk, receive. And a result, God was able to deliver both women from bondage. Not that their problems are all solved, of course not. But the friend now has a safe place to live, and Teresa got to see that even though she's lost her husband, she is not alone. Her God is with her, and he is mighty to save. And, he is, he, and, and that has given her a freedom from fear, grief, and loneliness. It's giving her freedom from those things and freedom for courage, adventure, and joy. You see, the bottom line here is it's about faith versus fear. Because the Israelites' real issue wasn't the meat and the onions that they wanted. It was fear. Fear of the steps they needed to take to get into the promised land and be free. Fear of the giants in the land. Fear of the problems that they confronted. But when we beat back that fear, when we stop believing that our Egypt has anything to offer us, and when we picture God's freedom and act as if our God is bigger than the obstacles and problems we face, then we are set free. I'll close with this story. Last week, my eight-year-old son was arguing with my wife about not wanting to go to a swim meet that he was signed up for. And his bondage was fear. And pretty soon, I heard the words that every husband dreads to hear, Scott, come and deal with your son. <laughs> so I talked to him, and I said, and, and I started talking to him, and he said to me, he said, you forced me to do swimming. Not true. And I hate it. Not true. He loves it. And I'm not going. And I said, look, you have to. You've made commitments. And then I said things like, man up, shake it off, get over it, that turned out not to be so helpful. for an eight-year-old. Well, he started yelling, getting angry, getting irrational, and it was very clear that a timeout was necessary. So after I took one, <laughs> I felt better. And then I prayed, Lord, help me with this. Because you see, in that moment, my eight-year-old son was like the Israelites, standing on the brink of freedom, but afraid to go in afraid of the giants, and romanticizing his bondage. I would rather stick with being afraid the rest of my life than do that swim meet. And I knew if he would just go to the swim meet that he would have fun and that he would find some freedom from that fear. So I went back to his room and he was curled up in his bed holding a pillow to his chest. And I said, what are you feeling, buddy? And he said, I'm scared. It's a new pool. I don't know anyone. I don't want to lose and have everyone look at me. 
And I said, well, you know, all your favorite athletes, Ichiro, Michael Phelps, all your favorite athletes, they get scared too sometimes. And then I said, you know, sometimes before I preach, I can sometimes get scared. Not normally, not, not, not usually, but occasionally, if I feel like it's a real dog of a sermon, I get a little nervous. You know, <laughs> I got to walk that dog five times in public. Ugly, but it's mine. <laughs> and so I said, what would happen if I didn't show up to preach because I was scared? And he said, well, they'd be mad at you because you wouldn't be there to boss them around and tell them what to do. <laughs> Is that what I'm doing? And I said something like that. And then I said, here's the deal, bud. Mom and I don't care who you beat tomorrow, and we don't care who beats you. All we want you to beat is that scared inside of you. Because if you don't beat the scared, that scared is going to beat up on you for the rest of your life. And then I said, remember when you were a little afraid to do baseball? He said, yeah. I said, how'd that turn out? He said, I had fun. I said, remember when you were a little afraid to do soccer? And he said, yeah, I had fun. And we just kind of talked like that, remembering God's faithfulness in the past. And then I prayed for him. Well, the next day before his first event, I said, what are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to beat the scared. And he did his first event, and he came back with this huge smile on his face, and I said, what are you grinning at? And he said, Dad, I beat the scared. <laughs> and then that night, right before he went to bed, I said, son, I am so proud of you. Do you know why? And he said, yeah, I beat the scared. And I said, yeah. And then I also thought that and the fact that you got a personal best, second place in two events, and first a place in another one, but <laughs> that's not important now. I don't want to be that guy. So how about you? Do you want to go back to Egypt or do you want to be free? Will you stop romanticizing your bondage? Focus on God's freedom. Do what God says to do, even if it looks like a giant to you, so that you can see that our God is bigger than any problems that we face and that with his help, you can beat the scared. Because whatever our problems, whatever the giants, whatever the obstacles to our getting free, our God is bigger. To paraphrase King David, a man in the Bible who knew how to beat the scared, what are those health problems or financial crises? What are those marriage troubles or family feuds? What are those dead-end jobs or feelings of guilt, despair, boredom, or loneliness? What are any of those things that they should defy the armies of the living God or block you from entering your promised land? Because Jesus is bigger, Jesus is stronger, Jesus is our victorious warrior, he conquered death, he is mighty to save. So this week, let's all get out there and beat the tar out of the scared so that we can be free. Amen? Amen. Lord Jesus, please help us to make that so, and we will give you all the glory. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.